Our reading is in Matthew chapter 2, beginning at verse 13. The escape to Egypt. When the wise men had gone, an angel of the Lord appealed to, appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up, he said. Take the child and his mother and escape to Egypt. Stay there until I tell you, for Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. So he got up, took the child and his mother during the night and left for Egypt where he stayed until the death of Herod. And so was fulfilled what the Lord had said through the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. When Herod realised that he had been outwitted by the Magi, he was furious and he gave orders to kill all the boys in Bethlehem and its vicinity, who were two years old and under in accordance with the time he had learned from the Magi. Then what was said through the prophet Jeremiah was fulfilled. A voice is heard in Ramah, weeping and great mourning. Rachel weeping for her children and refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Well, Happy New Year, everyone. It's uh, good uh, to be uh, here tonight and as an op optimist I need to tell you I find passages like the one we've got tonight uh, tough uh, as somebody who wants to uh, think the best about things I don't like it when I read the Bible and end up feeling a little bit sick probably if I really reflect on this passage and certainly a bit anxious this is not a nice passage we have just read just so, to be clear on that so if you're thinking all the Bible is a lovely, gentle book. This, this is not a nice uh, passage, and yet it's here, and we're reading it. I'm going to preach about it. It's called a text of terror. In it, there's an abuse of power, the slaughter of innocents, uh, the murder of babies, infanticide. And you want to watch Sherlock later on, I'm sure, when you've got to uh, deal with this. I must admit, when I first became Christian, quite a while ago, I think it was in, during the last ice age, um, I was, thought I was saying yes uh, to a great and wonderful life uh, with Jesus at the centre. And certainly that's what I was, thought I was saying uh, when I uh, committed my life uh, to follow him. And I must admit, often that is my experience, but long ago I've learnt that Christianity is harder than that. I've known for a long while that being a Christian can be tough. I've known for ages that following Jesus is definitely not the key to an easy life. I've known for a good while that darkness, persecution and great difficulty can be part of life when we're following Christ. And I've met people uh, who, for being a Christian, is a very tough ask. I've uh, met uh, Simon, who's uh, a church leader uh, from Laos. And he came round uh, to my house for tea. And he leads a really tough life. He basically tries to dodge the authorities who want to arrest him and put him in prison because he's an evangelist and tells other people about Jesus and he encourages churches. So he has to go underground. So he lives a life 
away uh, from view, if you like. He lives in forests, and when he's travelling, it, it seems when he was talking to me, it seems like he walked through rivers, so it became very difficult uh, to follow him, uh, so he couldn't be detected. I've met uh, Etty Ratner and Rebecca uh, from Indonesia, and they came round to my house too uh, for tea. And their story is uh, they had to spend several years in prison away from their families and their young children, and they were in prison simply uh, for running a Sunday school. <coughs> Being a Christian had a tough toll uh, for them, and you could see it, and yet they had a depth to their faith, which when you spoke to them, despite all this, was completely compelling. I met Amir from Egypt who came round uh, to my house for a few days this time and he had a cover job of being uh, a travel agent in Cairo so he could go around undetected and encourage church leaders and their congregations scattered across Egypt. It led to great complications for his family life and yet there was a big story which dominated his life which was calling him. So that is why he led such a difficult life. I was great mates at uh, Theological College uh, with Stephen, who's a parish priest uh, from Nigeria. In fact, I think he's an archdeacon or something like that now, though he is with his family. But he's recently, in December, had to live through three weeks of terror as his wife Florence, who's there as well, was kidnapped from their home. And that was all to disrupt and disturb their powerful ministry there and stop them being as confident as they are in reaching out with the love of God. There are governments in our world wanting to make life as hard for people as possible who follow Jesus. There are dark organisations who think nothing of murdering a priest or two. All this might feel a million miles away from us tonight here in our lovely safe environment. But there are people in our world, some with great power, who would like nothing better than to extinguish Christianity in a brutal way. First person who ever tried to do this is in our reading this evening. His name is Herod. He wanted to destroy it before it started. And this passage shows how close he got. It was almost finished before it began. The Magi of Christmas and gold, frankincense and myrrhine visited him at the beginning of this chapter 2 we're looking at tonight of Matthew's Gospel. And they managed in their visit to him to press all the wrong buttons for Herod. And this revealed Herod's devious, malicious and paranoid side. All of a sudden, an evil Herod awoke. All Herod heard for, for the from the Magi was that a new king of the Jews had arrived. And that meant for Herod, who was the present king of the Jews, that his throne was under pressure and he could think of nothing more than death and destruction for anyone who was a threat to him. Let me tell you about Herod. Uh, I want to tell you about him because he is a warning. Herod is a warning to any world leader, political leader, in fact anyone who's a leader or has power over anyone else. Perhaps he's a warning to people of our times. In fact, I think he's definitely a warning to people of our times. In a world of Trump and Putin and King Young, Kim uh, Young-un and Bashar al-Assad, 
in a world of corporations like Apple and Google and Nestle and Starbucks, in a world which is obsessed by popularity and market share and profits and power, King Herod is a big warning. However, at first glance, there is one or two positive things which should be said about Herod, because Herod was successful, he was able, he was an impressive politician of his times. He was so good, in fact, uh, that Rome, who ruled all that area at that time, made him a client king. He was useful to them, a local person who knew all the local traditions and characters, who knew all the people, and who was powerful in his home right, and who could get the taxes in, which kept their you know, sort of rule on the road, and somebody who would be uh, loyal to Rome. He was always going to be a winner in the way that Rome wanted to yield its power. And it must be said that Herod was pretty good at his job because he built cities and he built ports and he rebuilt the temple, so he, you know, that's a pretty good thing. And also he built a rather splendid palace, which probably put the temple down a little bit uh, for himself. He improved the infrastructure, he developed the culture, everything he touched seemed to turn to gold. So it's not surprising that he became known as Herod the Great. He did his job of keeping the peace between Jerusalem and Rome very well. So he became immensely powerful and for almost 40 years he had managed to hold the tension between the Jewish nation and the Romans. But that was getting harder and harder. A very dark side to Herod uh, started to be revealed more and more. Paranoia began to grip him. He revealed himself as a psychopath. He became neurotic. He had a complicated home life. He had ten wives and each of them had princes and over time infighting started to dominate at home. All of the princes wanted to be the number one prince and the Jewish historian Josephus, which is the reason why we know so much about Herod, gives us just a hideous tale of what was going on in the family at the time. Attempted poisonings, one brother against another. It so rattled Herod that he put to death three of his own sons on suspicion of treason. He put to death his favourite wife and then he killed his mother-in-law. And he invited the high priest down to Jericho for a swim once and they played apparently a very rough game of water polo and ended up drowning the high priest. He killed several uncles, a couple of cousins. He was, if you like, a real family man. <laughs> Emperor Augustus himself, to whom Herod was always very uh, uh, deferent, said, I would rather be Herod's pig than his son. He started to become panicky about his legacy, and we're probably in his panicky about legacy time here. Just as, do you remember how Tony Blair became very panicky about his uh, legacy pathetically in 2006. <coughs> and he soon discovered that he was not going to be loved after he'd left this world. He was not going to be mourned by his people. And so his mindset changed. Instead of chasing love and adulation amongst the population, he thought he'd give people something to cry about. He knew he didn't have long left in the world. He was dying. His 70-year-old body was full of disease. And it's as if, if people weren't going to cry over his death, he was going to give these people some pain. And those tears were going to start now because those magi never returned to him as he asked them to in the early section of chapter 2. 
Because of this, he was going to go down to Bethlehem and he was going to wreak havoc. And that's where we are as the passage begins. It's tense, it's dark, it's angry. Murder is on the agenda, the murder of babies. This is dark as life gets and someone with power gets very mad. We don't know how many baby boys were killed in Bethlehem, the estimates anywhere between 12 and 30. But Jesus was there in Bethlehem as one of these young boys. And uh, so it's very tense as we hit our section of the passage. Evil, brutal, disgusting, terrifying, appalling, all cooked up in the sick mind of someone who had immense power, but no control over himself, no self-awareness and no future. Fear-driven, hate-filled, as far as God as you can be, but also in competition with God. A man gone wrong, with one desire left to kill God himself. And so here was young Joseph and young Mary and their baby stuck in the middle of this narrative. They've just been visited probably by the richest people they'd ever met. Uh, there'd been a time of celebration, a party going on. And now they were sleeping it all off. And as they slept, God met Joseph in a dream. And Joseph had got used to meeting God in his dreams. This was the way that God connected with him. Now scientists tell us that dreams are the nervous system's way of sorting out the experiences that we've had during the day. We need deep sleep in order to let various parts of the brain talk to each other. So during sleep, our, sort of, our brains are working out our histories, they're storing images and with, that we've encountered during the time we've been awake. They're setting uh, to rights the clash of experiences and how we felt about them. And without good sleep, human beings can go mad. In sleep, we are utterly vulnerable. We're limp, receptive. Our lives get reconfigured, put together in new and startling ways. And dreams come when we no longer cling to the social convention or hide behind niceness. When we're unconscious, when we are, in fact, dead to ourselves, that's when dreams happen. And that's a perfect time for God to communicate. Someone said once, once said this, has said this about this passage. We don't know Joseph completely, but we know him well enough. Because in just the way God's messengers spoke to him, God speaks to us in inklings, love, inspiration, insight, empathy, and even disgust. When we are at our most vulnerable, if we know God's voice, we hear God's voice. Have you learned God's voice in your heart? Have you understood the way he moves in you? Have you understood the way he communicates with you? Joseph's dreams had immense and a powerful effect on him. As with many people in the Bible, in fact, what ways does God speak to you? What ways is God urging you on and encouraging you? And when he speaks and moves and communicates, with you. What do you do about it? Joseph, Joseph knew uh, when he dreamed he had to act, and so the supposed uh, king of the Jews, Jesus, goes and, if you like, does a reverse exodus and is rescued 
by leaving the promised land and ending all the way back in Egypt. Sometimes that's the way, that's the way. in order to go forward, we have to go uh, way back. And Mary, Joseph and Jesus had to all go all the way back, if you like, to the beginning. And theologically, this is very profound. Jesus retraces the steps of old in order to bring in God's true rescue and true release. Jesus is going to succeed after the last rescue attempt by Moses and his followers floundered. Also, pastorally, this movement back to Egypt becomes very important because within those moments, Jesus becomes a political refugee. He's forced out of his homeland. Jesus was abandoned. He had to escape, had little hope, had to live in the framework of fear which being a refugee gives. And this gives us the idea right at the start of Jesus' uh, ministry, well, it wasn't his ministry, right at the start of Jesus' life, that empathy and understanding of what it means to be a person, a particular person going through very dark times, becomes part of his life. He knows what it's like to be vulnerable. He knows what it's like to be out of control. And he speaks into the situation. God walks in the steps of the most humble and those who have the most difficulty, those who have no justice, little hope and fading futures. This is the landscape that God walks in. He is with the frightened, with the abused, with the ripped off, with the unwanted, the refugee and the homeless, those who are closer to death than life. Now Martin Scorsese has uh, a film out at the moment uh, called uh, The Silence. It's uh, a rather impressive uh, film, but it's also, I must warn you, a rather disturbing film as well, so I recommend it. Um, but be warned, it's a very intense and difficult watch. I'm not going to give any spoilers. Well, I hope I don't, but you'll be able to see, understand most of what I say from just watching uh, the trailer. But it's about two Portuguese uh, Jesuit priests whose mentor is in Japan and he's gone silent. And it's set in the 17th century and their concern for the mentor is real as uh, there's much persecution going on towards Christians in Japan at that time. So they prepare to get themselves uh, ready to go and rescue him. And whilst they try and find him, they become involved in the peasant communities uh, of Japan which uh, have decided uh, to become Christians. And uh, they start to recognise, and getting involved in their lives, what a difficult uh, place it is uh, to be uh, a Christian because it has to be a secret faith, otherwise uh, you die and in a terrible way and you do die. Um, and I do mean terrible. And the idea of running through this very long film, so you need a lot of time to go and watch this film, is that God, very difficult to detect in the terror of what's going on. God seems silent. However, to cut a very long story short, by the end of the film, an understanding is found that God maybe is not silent, but is walking alongside the peasant Christians and the priests as they face the terrors. It's so grim and terrible, and yet God seems to be with them, seems to be in the pain with them. It's hard to reconcile, it's hard to understand, as you just want him to jump in and <coughs> rescue the situation. But somehow God is there, and it feels real, but it also feels completely terrible. 
But this is what the early years of Jesus was like. He was escaping death from a mad king. Sadly, the boys left behind in Bethlehem had no escape. They were more like those peasants from the film, murdered and butchered, infamously known as the slaughter of the innocents. Grief was their parents' experience, all because some mad old king thought it better to terrify. This was the slaughter of the innocents, and there was no making sense of it. It is terrible. There is no rescue. It's as if the good, the humility, and the beauty of God are pitted against the evil, the brutality, and the control of the evil one. And in this instance, evil has won. The now and not yet kingdom has reared its head and it's plain for all to see. This is why God came. His story is one ultimately of rescue, but now it's too soon for the boys of Bethlehem. The tension of life, the reality of life runs through these verses. And if you live in Mosul or uh, Yemen, if you were part of that airport uh, attack in Florida last week, or involved in the dying hunger in Somalia, or are homeless and ignored here in Edinburgh, this is the still the edge of life, which is yours. This is real. And the, yet there's something else running through this passage as well as these brutal words. You see it in the way that Matthew refers back to the prophets in verse 15 and 18. There's a connection being made between the events of terror, but also the bigger story of God. You see, sometimes when you look at our world, you despair. Just this week, a friend of mine who's 51 collapsed and died of a stroke. And then Jenny and I heard about another friend of ours this week who's been diagnosed with cancer as a young woman. We're in a world which doesn't make sense and can feel completely awful and unfair. It's a world which makes you want to turn to God and say why. Passages like this one give us permission to do this. It gives us permission to say to God, I don't want to be part of a world like this. And that's the thing, God doesn't want to be part of a world like this too. The references to the prophets in these verses show us that the story of Jesus places us into the massive story of God, the eternal story. And this is God starting to work it out. This is God beginning to redeem our small and unfair stories, our wicked and our unjust world, our broken and failing planet. This is God giving us a glimpse, but also an invitation to join in and follow him right now and be part of the bigger story. The story of love and new beginnings, of forgiveness, mercy, justice and redemption. The story of hope and freedom can now be and is our story. We're not completely there yet. The grown-up Jesus uh, has got the ball rolling. His death and resurrection has given us a new story. But we're still in this tension of working it out. And we're still seeing evil rear its head day in, day out. So we still wait. We see it in a mirror dimly, if you like, but it's not clear. And so we live in this world. And for me, it's a difficult world. I hate the political narrative which is uh, being pushed at us day by day at the moment. I hate the way the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. I hate it that poor mental health leads to somebody shooting up 
an airport. I detest the way a president can tweet out a late at night in a bullying way. I hate the world way we choose our uh, superficiality, if you like, over substance. I hate the way we're ruled by fear in the lowest common denominator. And I hate the way that friends of mine are dying too young and having to deal with major illnesses. And yet in this terror and pain, our reading invites us also to join in a bigger story, the story of the prophets, the story which says there's another way, the story which knows things aren't as they should be, the story which asks us to have hope even when things look bad, the story which says, despite everything, God's not finished uh, with me yet. At the start of 2017, this is the kind of passage which says, don't give up on God, don't miss out on him as you get anxious about the future and where the world is heading. Don't base your life, if you like, on a local story and a local political narrative and the narratives of the news or your workplace or your family and friends. Instead, look to the bigger story. There's so much to be fearful about, but ultimately the passages like this encourages us to have courage. As I was preparing and praying about this and asking God what he wanted to share from the passage, it became clear to me that what God needs us to be and encouraging us to be is people of courage. He's saying to us tonight, be brave, be bold, be audacious. That's the antidote to fear and the life which Herod was offering his people and the life which perhaps some of us are living in nowadays. We're reminded in these verses there's a much, much bigger story going on. It's a story of love, a story that despite everything that you and I matter to God. A story which says, even when we feel powerless, we can still make a difference. It's the story of Simon. It's the story of Etty, Ratner and Rebecca, who I spoke of earlier on. It's the story of Amir and Stephen and Florence. <coughs> All people who, despite the invitation to be anxious and fearful, and maybe under pressure to give up on God because it's all too difficult, instead chose to be courageous and live their life in that way. And despite all the signs, my invitation to you this new year is to choose courage rather than fear because courage changes everything. It's not easy choosing courage. You'll be swimming upstream, it's exhausting and sometimes it will be easy to give up on. But courage is what gives us strength when we feel like giving up, hope when everything else is failing, peace when signs are pointing to despair. Courage is that thing which will change the world. Courage is what enables us to join in with God's story when the rest of our society wants to give up on God. So may the courage of Mary, Joseph and Jesus be with you this evening. The courage which helped them to listen to God's voice, may that be with you this evening. The courage which gave them the energy to escape be with you tonight. The courage which helped them to join in the big story, be part of your story tonight. Which The courage which banished fear from them be with you this evening. God bless you as you work out what all this is about. Amen. Would you please stand? As we stand, let's pray together. 
And we just hold before God what he's saying to us now. We lift before God those leaders of churches that we saw at the start of Richard's talk. Those leaders in Laos and Egypt and Nigeria. And we pray for God's strength. We pray for God's comfort. And we pray for God's courage to fill them afresh tonight. that right at the beginning of the story of Jesus we see God walking alongside people in terror in cruelty and pain and right at the start of the story of Jesus We see God entering not a sanitised, safe world, but a world that's dangerous and difficult, that asks profound questions, but where God himself comes and suffers alongside his people. And in the silence we hold before God those parts of our world where there is more obvious pain and suffering, situations like the Yemen, Somalia, Syria, Iraq and Afghanistan. But then closer to home, we pray for those who in our own society and in our own city feel on the edge, feel forgotten, feel as though they're on the margins, feel as though they've been left behind. It might be because of age, it might be because of economics, <coughs> but we just live before God, those in our own city, those in our own community, those in our own family perhaps, who need to be reminded of God's unconditional love. And that profound love that speaks into pain and mystery and hurt and confusion.
finally we hear God speaking to us this evening calling us to be brave and bold to have courage Jesus said that he would leave us a comforter and the literal meaning of the word comfort is with strength the Holy Spirit is one who strengthens us maybe this evening you feel very weak you feel very empty you feel very afraid and you feel very frightened just have the sense this evening that God is wanting to pour out his spirit upon you and to give you strength to give you courage to be bold and to be brave It doesn't depend on how good you are. It doesn't depend on how strong you feel. It doesn't depend on how close to God you sense you might be or not. But all the resources of God himself are just waiting to be poured out upon you. And God wants to pour out his spirit fresh tonight. To strengthen hands that are weak and knees that feel feeble and frail and God wants to pour life and courage and hope and strength into you this evening So Father, as we've prayed for the church around the world, as we've prayed for our city and our nation, as we've prayed for different parts of your world, Father, we end by praying simply for ourselves and asking that you would come afresh now by your Spirit. Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and to move afresh in this place. And particularly, Lord, as you come and fill us afresh, we pray for people who are feeling empty, people who are feeling frightened, people who are feeling afraid. And we ask, Lord, that you would pour your strength afresh into them. So we just simply invite you to come afresh and to pour your love, to pour your hope, to pour your peace, to pour your courage fresh into our hearts and minds. Holy Spirit, would you come at the start of this new year would you come and fill us afresh that we might live the lives that you long for us to live. In Jesus' name. Amen.